Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Yeah, you might have heard tell that there's a lot of stuff going on in the world and culture and politics that are outside of America's borders. And traditionally, when we talk about things like that, we talk about foreign policy and how it affects America. But we're in this weird space where America is kind of figuring out what it wants to do foreign policy wise. Uh, the last five years of political upheaval, we have a new president and President Biden who's been on the job for about six months now. What is America going to be foreign policy wise? And while we're figuring all this out, the world keeps turning. Russia's doing stuff. There's a big news item out now that Russia's taking credit for a massive misinformation campaign in America. Stop me if you've heard that one before. China's doing all sorts of things. There's Middle East problems, as there always are. America is pulling out of Afghanistan. America announced this morning, as we sit to record this, that they're going to be pulling all the way out of Iraq again. What do we make of all these foreign policy moves, and how do we meld it into the American cultural and politic landscape that we're usually been talking about? Well, today on Hertel, we're going to turn to a friend of ours, Nicholas Grossman. He's an international relations professor at the University of Illinois. He's a senior editor at ARC Digital. Uh, he's written books on things like drones and terrorism. He's a good voice on some of these things that we're not really, as Americans and as the body politic, and especially as the news media, seem to be having kind of a handle on not talking about things that don't directly affect us domestically or in our partisan politics. So let's talk a little foreign policy today. Let's talk about how things like this Russian story may be a little too good to be true for people with priors that are for that and how we need to be skeptical of information that comes out of sources like that. What do we do about what we've seen in Cuba where we've seen these images of protests and we want to support the protesters. We want to be beacons of freedom, but we've also have 130 years of history in Cuba and we have recent events like in Belarus and Hong Kong of protesters 
being sympathetic to them, but not really being able to help them out in a meaningful way. Is there any way we can help them? So we'll ask him about that. We're also going to dig into how we get information sources. So when breaking news like we've seen lately of these tell-all books from administrative officials from the previous administration, what kind of credence should we give them, if any? And what does it mean when people with good information that the American people should have in the moment wait to only reveal it when they can make a profit off of it? We're going to delve into all this today on Her Tell. A little bit of foreign policy, spin it back into how culture and politics in America is being used in those spheres with our friend Nicholas Grossman right after this on Her Tell. We're really privileged and thrilled. Uh, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, Our friend Nicholas Grossman is joining us. He's the international relations professor at the University of Illinois. He's a senior editor at Arc Digital. Uh, he's written books. He's all over social media. He's done some other commentary you can find. My friend, I'm thrilled to actually get to talk to you in person and not just over uh, email and DM for a change. How are you? I'm doing well. And thanks for having me. It's nice to attach a voice to a Twitter and article handle. Yeah, it's weird how you get to be friends with people and, and really learn to respect people and, and value their opinion. And then you realize, wow, I've kind of known this guy for years and I don't actually know what his voice sounds like other than catching you on another person's pod. It's funny how the world works that way. I probably talk to some people on Twitter more than I talk to, say, a lot of close friends or family members. It's just, of course, through social media and on very specific topics. You know, we don't chat about, I don't know, how your kids, you know, or something like that. Sure. I do the same thing. And and one of those topics I don't ever talk about my kids is one with very often, unless something pops up on the news, is culture and politics, which is what we're dealing with here. And especially things like foreign policy, which is something I follow really closely. You're obviously, you've not only follow it, but you also kind of teach in that realm. I, I'm, I'm curious your opinion on it because it seems like, in, at least in my lifetime, I'm 41 years old now, this is a very odd time for how the American public and the body politic is kind of dealing with foreign policy. It's not an isolationist thing per se like we've seen in the past, but it does seem like we're not really paying attention to things unless we kind of find a domestic or partisan tent to it to pay attention to it. Is that what you're seeing right now in in that realm? I think that's fair and that it's a combination of two forces. One which we call not so much isolation as retrenchment that the United States had been uh, very assertive around the world in the 2000s, you think under George W. Bush and continued in a variety of ways under Obama. You've got uh, wars in Afghanistan, in Iraq, you have uh, military operations in a variety of places, uh, including Libya, um, have drone strikes in uh, additionally to those countries, Yemen and Somalia. Um, So overall, the United States had been uh, very aggressive and under some arguments overextended uh, over the course of the decade and is pulling back um, in that regard. And we saw that not only with the withdrawal from Afghanistan that is ongoing now, but also uh, the what is likely to be upcoming withdrawal from Iraq, uh, which was just announced this morning. Yeah, McGurk this morning, uh, I believe it was McGurk announced it, formally notified Iraq that we were going to pull all the troops out of Iraq. So that's what you're just, you mean by we're pulling out of Iraq just this morning as we record this. Right. Just, just this morning it was announced, uh, McGurk announced that the U.S. had been talking about it with Iraq. Um, and that is ending the deployment that began in 2014 to fight ISIS. So that's one aspect of, uh, say, retrenching. Um, and then another one is you could say maybe inwardly looking 
um, or perhaps navel gazing that a big part of it was the Trump presidency and the uh, reality show aspects of it and the unusual, uh, in some sense, threats to democracy aspects of it um, that I fully admit that I got totally caught up in. I am sure I'm far from the only person for, of this, but where I paid less attention to other stuff going around in the world because I was so focused on stuff within the United States. And for people like me, national security types, um, the change from what is the biggest threat to the stability of the United States um, or to, say, American security more broadly, shifted from a focus on terrorists as it was in the 2000s and decent amount of the 2010s um, and also rogue states, think Iran, North Korea, um, into a focus potentially on domestic threats. And so um, you have that, plus all the hyper-partisanship and culture war stuff of a lot of maybe inward focus as opposed to a more out outwardly focused, globalized look from America. When do you think that change happened? Because the old adage used to be that, well, partisanship needs to stop at the water, and then overseas we kind of had more of a unified American perception on what we wanted to do. When, when did that start getting more partisanized? You're, I mean, obviously the last five years of Trump has been its own little ball of stuff, kind of complete. I don't know if it's an inflection point in history, but for lack of a better term, that's, things really changed since then. But it was starting before Trump really, wasn't that? It didn't just Trump kind of bring out some of those, if you want to call them nationalist tendencies or whatever it is. When do you think that started to really change and show itself? At some level, partisanship stops at the water's edge or politics stops at the water's edge was always a myth. You know, it was always something that uh, maybe rose-colored look at the past. Um, but you can see some pretty clear signs of it, or at least something similar, um, in uh, under Bush, that um, the approval for the war in Afghanistan was over 90%. Most Democrats voted for it. Um, the uh, approval for the uh, almost every, sorry, uh, almost every Democrat voted for it. The only exception, there was one vote against, which was Barbara Lee, a congresswoman, Democratic congresswoman from uh, California. And then most Democrats, um, or actually, sorry, I shouldn't say most, a lot of Democrats voted to invade Iraq. So the invasion of Iraq had 60-something percent public approval, um, and a lot of prominent Democrats, uh, including uh, their future presidential candidates, both John Kerry and Hillary Clinton, uh, voted for the Iraq War. Um, Obama was not in Congress at the time. Biden also voted for the Iraq War. And so the... Um, there was a, a large group of support for that. And as happens typically with wars that go on in, uh, for a long time and get ugly and don't seem to have any end, uh, like Vietnam, that the public shifted against it. But uh, that wasn't so much a shift against Bush, per se, um, or against Bush's decisions. Although, of course, you know, there were a lot of Democrats who were very harshly critical uh, of George W. Bush. Um, I think probably if I had to pick a, a watershed time, because Trump really made it a lot worse, but um, that if there was a point of change, I think it was under Obama where um, Republicans in opposition to him and in part of something I'd written about previously in opposition to almost an imaginary version of him, um, a much more of a kind of left wing socialist radical than, you know, he governed like a uh, left of center um, kind of liberal institutionalist. Um, but in this picture of Obama as, um, you know, not a real citizen or somebody who uh, that when Newt Gingrich talked about how he has these decolonial attitudes and that, you know, his goal is to basically uh, avenge colonialism or other things that did not match what actual Obama was talking about, but a series of opposition, almost reflexive, adamant opposition to whatever he was doing abroad. So there's some things like, say, the Iran nuclear deal, which is a matter of genuine disagreement in which people argued about a lot, but also a variety of kind of strange 
happenings in the Obama administration that didn't really happen before, maybe most notably, was when the Republican Party invited uh, Republican-controlled House of Congress. Um, invited Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to come and address Congress and speak out against the Iran nuclear deal. And that was something that hadn't really happened before in American history, where instead of coordinating between the head of state of, and head of government of Israel with uh, the leader of the United States, with the president, as has always happened when foreign leaders come and visit with the United States, he went around the president and uh, Congress brought him in, the opposition party of Congress brought him in to basically bash the president and his foreign policy on US soil. And so if I had to pick a, a single moment where that shift uh, happened, it was the uh, Republican party primarily and by throwing it out over opposition to Obama. I think it's a fair criticism of the Republican Party particularly, but the right wider. Uh, they really seem, at least in, again in my lifetime, I'm 41 years old now, you used to pretty much have, you know, nothing's a monolith, but you kind of knew basically what the Republican Party wanted for and policy-wise. And in the last, especially the last five years or so, but more than 10, 15 years during the global table, there really has been a lot more of a non-aggression, isolationist, our libertarian friends call it the non-aggression policy part that's rising on the right that traditionally wasn't there. And it's a lot more splintered on the right as to what they want from a foreign policy outlook anyway than you put the partisanship of having uh, a Democratic president in office. You kind of have a mess of trying to discern out where they're at politically and foreign policy wise, don't you? I think that's right. And I think that they're connected. So a big part of the story about how the Republican Party got where it is today is the end of the Cold War. So you had a organizing principle right. for the right in the United States, but in the West more broadly of anti-communism, especially anti-Sovietism. And with the end of the Cold War and the kind of triumph of the Washington consensus and Democrats embracing markets, you know, you people like Bill Clinton going for a third way and free trade and other things like that. A lot of the big divide that separated Republicans from Democrats collapsed, that there were, of course, still really big cultural differences. Abortion is an obvious one. Um, so it's not like the parties were at all identical, but they didn't have that same uh, anti-communism versus maybe a little too friendly or a little too, you know, say, OK with communism or uh, engagement versus confrontation or any of these other big Cold War divides. And that without that unifying enemy, um, the right has in large part shifted to unifying around the idea of opposing the American left, broadly defined, um, you know, so liberals, progressives, sure. even centrists, then um, opposing communists. And that, so those two are intertwined in that way. I, I wonder, it seems like with this, it's like the lexicon hasn't caught up yet. Like we're still using the old terms and the old labels and it doesn't seem to really fit what's going on. Uh, we, we see this lately this last week, especially down in Cuba, obviously a communist country. Uh, again, we see the split. Obama released some sanctions on them, normalized certain relations with them. Trump put those back into place. President Biden hasn't done anything in that area to change that as of yet, although he said he would eventually. Now we see the protests. And we, where does this start to show up in the in our today timeline with something like Cuba, where the right obviously goes with the anti-communist angle. And, and of course, as Americans, when we see protests against government and a repressive regime, we have an empathy for them, as we should. But there's a lot of complicated history. We talk about Afghanistan for 20 years. We've been in Cuba for 130 years. So how does that start to show up in our timeline, what we're talking about, how these, these fault lines are starting to show and change and move 
and then we have it on our TV screens with something like the protests in Cuba. Cuba is a weird case because one, as you mentioned, that the U.S. has been involved there for well over 100 years. I mean, it got it from uh, Spain in the Spanish-American War originally. Um, and as you mentioned, the United States has been involved with Cuba for over 100 years. It's a close neighbor. Um, it played a special role in the Cold War with the Cuban Missile Crisis and also as a symbolic uh, communist state close to the United States. And it also has a weird wrinkle in domestic politics because of Florida is a major swing state and anti-communist, almost overwhelmingly anti-communist uh, Cuban exiles are a prominent part of the Florida electorate. And uh, so as a result, um, there is almost like some degree of old school Cold War stuff rising its head again. And you have uh, people on the farther left, like the Democratic Socialists of America, put out what was basically a pro-Cuban government statement against the people in Cuba, uh, because I guess they are uh, ideologically pro-socialist and people who are ideologically anti-socialist have been um, arguing, you know, say also that the core part of the problem is the government. And it seems that the People are primarily protesting about, you know, the government in general to some extent, but especially uh, food shortages and difficulty with COVID. And of course, the shortages are in part connected with the fact that the government is communist and has uh, less efficient uh, distribution and um, also a little in part that the United States has the embargo against Cuba, um, though that is unlikely given how much Cuba trades with other people, unlikely to really be, say, the core cause of their problem. And seeing a uh, protest in Cuba and something, it scrambles some of the current kind of 2021 domestic politics lines in the United States, domestic politics divisions, because it's this Cold War throwback. It's things that a lot of the people arguing about it are having or making basically the same arguments that they would have made in 1980. And it seems like it's um, scrambled people's political compasses for a lot. One is you you mentioned it, the uh, Cuban community and the wider Hispanic community in Florida is politically powerful, as they should be. They've done very well there. But it also, you know, it comes at a time where the Biden presidency is kind of in a weird transition moment where domestically the, the legislative agenda is kind of stalled. So the view kind of goes overseas a little bit. But this isn't really one of those solvable kind of problems. We, we kind of know where this is going to go, don't we? Because they're going to crack down on these protests for at least today. We've seen this in Belarus. We've seen this uh, overseas in Hong Kong. We're going to empathize with these folks. We're going to say somebody should do something, but nobody's going to do something. And then the repressive regimes they're dealing with are probably going to win at least this round for now, aren't they? Probably. Uh, that's a, a little more a little more negative, a little more pessimistic than, than I like to be. You know, I, I'd rather not every, be that pessimistic, but that's kind of, you know, we, we keep seeing the movie over and over again. I just, at yeah, least for now. mostly. I mean, every, every protest, every movement, every attempt to challenge an authoritarian government looks like it's going to fail until it doesn't. So it's really hard to see, like, oh, this time I think they have it. Um, I do think you're right to put it in a larger picture of a global struggle between democracy and authoritarianism. And authoritarianism has had some pretty big wins lately with, um, I think, and Hong Kong is probably the biggest one. Belarus is another yeah. good example. Um, but it's not uh, the only ones. I mean, one just has a, a somewhat, you know, this is not directly related, but... Um, the United States got rid of an aspiring authoritarian with the ballot box. Uh, currently, um, the 
uh, authoritarian wannabe president of Brazil is uh, trailing badly in polls and expected to lose his reelection attempt. Yep. Um, so that could be another opportunity to say push things more in a uh, democratic and uh, free rule of law direction than um, they were going there again with the ballot box. So um, definitely, I, I won't say you know we're not out yet, but um, on. Cuba, yes, probably the government will regain control of something. Um, another example that of you know protests, you can think to Iran, that there have been throughout the 21st century multiple pro-democracy protests in Iran that maybe looked like they could have some successes and then were violently put down, and then the government reestablished control. Arab Spring is another example of something uh, where people in large protests seem to have an effect and then basically found themselves back in an authoritarian country a few years later. So I wouldn't say that it's likely that they're going to over overthrow Cuba, uh, overthrow the communist Cuban government. But also, I don't know if there's anything we can really do about it. So there's this uh, impulse to do something. And I understand that impulse. I think I probably have uh, more of a bias towards doing something than doing nothing. I think people often greatly discount the downside of inaction. You know, just assume that inaction is, that there's no downside to it. And if you don't do anything, then nothing is, nothing that happens is your fault. And um, I don't agree with that, especially in the case of the United States, because it's the world's most powerful country and has done so much to set up the global architecture. Um, And it has, you know, with a prominent role for the U.S. in it. So U.S. maybe has more responsibility to it. But I don't know what could be done about Cuba, per se. It's not like the United States, what, invade and occupy the country? I think most people would agree that that's a dumb idea. Uh, Try to assassinate the leader, you know, and then not only did that fail multiple times in the past, but also, you know, who knows what would come after or it would be uh, potentially chaotic. Economic pressure. We've been trying economic pressure for many decades and it clearly failed. I think um, it's evident that the... U.S. embargo of Cuba is something that's more, uh, you know, the term that people would use online is virtue signaling, that basically it's uh, the America's way of saying we officially do not approve, as opposed to a strategy that is goal-oriented, that if we do this, then we will achieve X, because we've been doing that for many decades, and X does not seem any closer as a result. And then something like the Obama approach, which maybe Biden would want to do, I don't know, but given the legacy, uh, might want to do. But the Obama approach was also aimed at longer term. It was the idea that the embargo has failed and the United States is very appealing. Capitalist democracy is more appealing than communist authoritarianism. And if we have more exchanges with Cuba, that more Cubans will see that, hey, America actually is better. And more wealth for a Cuban middle class from trading with Americans would make it that they are less susceptible to authoritarianism and more likely to resist a uh, centralized communist government. So any of that could have, in theory, improved the situation, but at best it would be long term. It's something that says if we do this, maybe in 10 years they'll uh, overthrow the government or 20 years it will evolve to something more peaceful. So in terms of what can we do now, I don't have any good ideas and I haven't heard anybody have a good idea either. Besides, you know, give some oracle support to the protesters, make them feel they're not alone. Which we should do as, as people that love freedom. But I wonder, I wonder if one of the Cold War lessons that gets lost, though, is that we, we won the Cold War. You know, the Soviet Union did collapse. They collapsed economically, and they part of that economic collapse was the exportation of American culture and the opening up of the Ameri- of kind of the Red Wall where they, you know, we remember from history the famous kitchen debate. It was like, oh, American kitchens, of course they don't have all this stuff, and we did, that sort of stuff. But is this one of those areas where some of our, our own house being out of order is really hurting us because 
what we're exporting culturally and politically right now to the rest of the world in the post what we saw earlier this year in January in our own capital stuff images like that that kind of hurts our standing to be able to use a cultural pressure point as Americans doesn't it at least in history where we had that tool in the bag we may not have that right now or at least we need to work on making it a little stronger unfortunately yes though I also wouldn't say it's quite as bad so the United States having violence associated with its election of having a leader that tried to stay in power despite losing an election, having a non-peaceful transfer of power for uh, the first time since the aftermath of the Civil War is a big deal. And it has hurt America's image. It has hurt what you might call America's brand um, to and America's moral authority to a decent extent. It's also freaked out a lot of people around the world who realize that the global architecture, the whole stability of the world, um, is based on the linchpin of the United States. Right. However, however, that said, if you look at places like Cuba or like protesters in Hong Kong or Belarus, you see people who are pro-democracy protesters waving the American flag. And it is clear that people still see it as a symbol for freedom, still look to America for help. If one was just being... Um, kind of coldly analytic, you know, meaning taking emotion out of it and just looking at the comparison between powerful countries in the world, what the United States is offering, even with its problems, is still more appealing to freedom-loving people than, say, what China or Russia is offering. Um, and I don't think it's especially close. And so as a result, there still is a decent amount of moral authority and ability for the United States to support these. And it's also worth keeping in mind that the US was often hypocritical when it was making those arguments before. So things like a, uh, a favorite whataboutism of the Soviet Union was when Americans or Westerners in general would criticize their human rights record, they would point to things like uh, civil rights protesters in the South getting attacked with dogs and fire hoses and other things to say like, what are the Americans talking about? That's not actually, you know, they're not free there either. They're, they're being hypocrites. They're lying to you. But it is relatively more free uh, than Russia was then or than it is today. And some people around the world still do see it that way. Um, and I also wouldn't discount the um, fact that there were a whole lot of uh, kind of cynical, world-weary, you know, people who mistake cynicism for wisdom around the world saying that that was it. Trump was in power forever. You're so naive. He's never going to leave. Look, we've seen it happen here. You just don't get it. And then uh, our institutions held and the people removed him. So that also is a positive for democracy and something that we can potentially build on. We're seeing this uh, just today as we record this. We, we know the Russians are, are somewhat of a, a paper tiger. Their, their economy is not in great shape, even though they're militarily are a power. They're trying to project a symbol of strength. And their main weapon against us right now is their disinformation tactics they've been using. We have this story out in The Guardian this morning. I'm very highly skeptical of it because it really puts uh, the Putin regime in Russia in a very good light at a very opportune moment, which sends off alarm bells in my head. I read through it for the most part. It's mostly stuff we already known spun to make uh, Russia look really good. But it's like what you said. This is a playbook that they've had of using when we have racial strife like we've been having for the last year in social justice realms. When we have strife like this, they like to try to play the what about game against us. And even though we need to work on those things, they're very readily apparent to stir it up amongst us. And I think people get caught up on mashing the send button and don't realize that overseas outside our borders, that actually makes us weak when we're fighting amongst ourselves about such things. It does. And there isn't, though, say, a 
a magic wand that I could wave to get rid of it. You know, it'd oh, be absolutely. Uh, it's like, oh, well, South American polarization. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I, I'd love to. If I had any good ideas for that, I would tell you. Um, the Guardian report specifically. So uh, you're right that the um, Russian government is is really good at information warfare. Um, I'd say world class, and yep. um, that they have used that in part to punch above their weight. So this particular report that the Guardian gets, they claim to have a document that was leaked from the Kremlin about a meeting in January 2016, in which Putin and senior uh, national security, foreign policy and intelligence uh, officials like the tip top in Russia worked out the plan to conduct a intelligence operation against the 2016 US election with the intention of electing Trump because it would create division and kind of undermine American power abroad and give Russia more space to operate. And the way I just described it to you, that is what we already know, um, with the exception of this meeting on this date. Um, the general idea of Russia conducted a big operation, big intelligence operation against the United States, and the goals of this operation were to ideally elect Trump, but just in general to discredit democracy and create division in the United States. And to that extent, it's fair to say it worked pretty darn well that, you know, I mean, that's clearly not something I'm happy about, but uh, it, it worked. And I can tell you at the very least, while it is impossible to know whether it affected the outcome at all, it is, you know, maybe they helped Trump win. Maybe the fact that uh, it was publicized, at least somewhat, that Russia was involved or, you know, supporting Trump in some manner. Maybe that made some national security types, national security conservatives more likely to vote Hillary, you know, for example. I mean, and that just, just guesses. Maybe the vote would have been exactly the same. We have no way to know without being able to rerun the election in a parallel universe without Russian interference. So of course, that's not happening. But I can tell you that because they wanted this to happen and it did happen, they're definitely taking credit for it. And intelligence agencies around the world think that they deserve at least some credit for it and so are acting accordingly. But from Russia's perspective, having this go out, it was, yeah, in some cases, maybe a little too perfect. There was a lot of things that you know make them look good as opposed very planned as opposed to haphazard at all or maybe ad hoc um, there was a claim that uh, in the article at least that this report makes a reference to having compromise you know compromising material uh, on trump from his time in uh, russia and it doesn't say in the report what that is but that's the sort of thing that could either have been a real discussion in which people were kind of vaguely referring to something that all of them already knew about, or it could be the sort of thing that is ambiguous enough and tied to enough old stories that they just sort of toss in there to get people trying to guess what it is or to get people scrambling. We now have good reason to believe, have known pretty much since about uh, maybe mid-2017, that the, uh, quote, P-tape uh, scandal about Trump that broke in uh, early 2017, that was part of the Steele dossier, was almost certainly Russian disinformation. And uh, they played us like a fiddle, That where they um, are very good at mixing in both true and false information um, into this stuff. And uh, that makes it so that when, if you figure out that some of it's false, that makes you doubt the true parts. And if you recognize yep. that some of it's true, that makes you more likely to believe the false parts. And it is you know something everybody should be careful with especially because it confirms some priors some preconceptions that some people had 
while not actually providing anything new, uh, anything new or all that interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I'd, I would take this particular report. I'd be cautious about it. Um, be wary, you know, say, wait for more people to confirm. Um, but it's also one of those things that we don't really need it. So besides, like you said at the beginning of making the Russian government seem awfully competent, which is, of course, in their interest, it's one of the ways that they punch above their weight, that making them seem very competent and then people think they're more competent than they are. And so then they act as if they're more competent than they are, which gives them that degree of power. Um, so without that, though, they don't really have a uh, I'm trying to think the best way to put this um, by bringing uh, we don't actually learn something from it. So it doesn't need to be taken as true or false to really change our understanding of what Russia did, as long as you assume that uh, part of it that makes them seem really competent might be spin. Yeah, I had a State Department, and I, when I say State Department, I mean that is an umbrella term for various things, not the building in Foggy Bottom. He told me years ago, he said the real the real trick to being an intel person that has a long career is to make sure you take credit for things that happened anyway and make sure you were involved in it. So I think that might be a, a little bit of what's going on here because I I don't know. I, I know. I know that chaos helps people who function well in chaos, and that's kind of been this the current russian regime under putin is they're really good at operating in chaos and spinning it their way so that's just kind of the broad picture i'm i'm sure there's facts on the ground that we can delve into later but when things with putin and russia come out that's kind of where i start at and then work my way back out understanding that you know that's what that guy is he's a he's a he's a spy he's an operative he's been that all his life and that's just his worldview on how he does things like this i think that's part of it and him personally and also that it's a logical approach for russia's current stance in international power. So oh, yeah. the current international system benefits the United States. The U.S. is effectively in charge of it. The current international system benefits China. China is rising within it. But the current international system does not benefit Russia. Russia is declining within the current system. So as a result, throwing chaos and disrupting the current system primarily would hurt its rivals, Russia, China, and Europe, um, as opposed to hurting Russia. So it is to its benefit. It is um, a, uh, you know, obviously not a, a strategy I'm happy about, but it's one that makes sense under their strategic circumstances. And one of those really on the nose thing that rose a red flag in that uh, Guardian story with me this morning was all these meetings they're having on setting up Trump, they just happen to praise the Chinese to high heaven and talk about how they need to improve relations with the Chinese at the same time from years ago. Ain't that convenient. Oh, you know, I, I didn't see that. I was so focused on the U.S. part. But yeah, that that's a good point. What is that doing in this in this report? Yeah. Um, you know, it could be right. Both a oh, maybe the Chinese see it and oh, you know, like we should get along more with Russia or maybe Americans see it and think, oh, no, like Russia and China together. That's more powerful. You know, we need to be more worried. Oh, no. Um, and there doesn't seem to be a specifically relevant thing. Of course, of course, we're talking about it now as if we're assuming that it is deliberate disinformation crafted by people to mess with those who read it. And it's also possible. I don't want to totally rule out that it's real. You know, the Guardian certainly seemed to think it was real, reported it as real. Um, and I don't know. So while I, I also have, say, my, my hackles up about it and I would not treat it as fact, I also wouldn't go ahead just to assume that it's definitely fake. Yeah, I can. I can look which at is a part map. of the trick, which is part of the trick, also with these things. You sure. know that that you can't. That it's almost impossible to always totally know, and so you sort of have to operate in almost this, uh, you know, Schrodinger's report thing, where it is kind of both true and not true at the same time. 
I, I mean, I'm not saying I can look at a map and see which way gas prom pipelines can go, but I can look at a map and see which way pipelines can go. Just saying. <laughs> um, what, while we're talking about disinformation, there's something else that I gets my radar up, and it's whenever these people write these tell-all White House books after the fact. You had a tweet this morning, and I wanted to ask you about it because I thought you laid something out really good, and I'll, I'll just read it to you for the audience. But Bolton thought the public didn't know about Trump's Ukraine scheme. Woodward thought the public didn't know about Trump was lying about COVID. Lenning, I'm mispronouncing his name, I'm sure, Lenning and Rucker thought the public didn't know need to know about the chair of the Joint Chiefs fearing a coup, and then the bullet line, until they could profit. The, these books come out, I'm always skeptical of them uh, at the face, and then I understand there's some truth in there, but they're also writing a book, and it's people that have a motive to get out information like that. What, what do you make, not just this latest revelation, but the, the Trump years are going to be a goldmine for books for years and years and years to come. How do we parse out what's true, what's not true when we're dealing with an information source like that? The true, not true, if, if that's your goal, I think the answer is pretty much the same as applies to anything, which is read a variety of sources, try to question your own preconceptions, um, be careful about the difference between something that has been proven and something that just one person says, question the source. So I think you're right that there is an element of a lot of these books where officials who were there are trying to sanitize their inf- uh, their image for history in one way or another you know that they want to go down as somebody who uh like i always knew it was wrong or uh you didn't understand everybody out there you didn't understand but i was actually doing stuff to prevent this inside you know i i, I wasn't helping it even though i was working for him i i was i i, I was i was stopping it you know uh, i'm good i'm good you know re- remember me that way um so there's definitely part of that and i don't mean it i, I know i made it sound you know more nefarious but that's also just a normal human thing that um, everybody wants to think that they did their best and they did the right thing and they're not the sort of person who would, you know, no one no one likes to think, you know, when they say the, uh, you know, what would you have done if you were in Nazi Germany? Nobody likes to think, oh, I would have marched along with the Nazis. You know, people are like, oh, I would have stood up against them. You know, uh, I mean, chances are most people probably would have just kept their head down. But either way, that they're, they're, they're saying themselves, that, you know, they're setting themselves up that way. Um, but on the people who write the books, the thing that I was, uh, that really rubs me the wrong way, that I think is, um, I don't know, unethical, unpatriotic, um, that is these folks who have what amounts to something really important that had happened inside the administration that the public doesn't know about. And instead of informing the public as soon as they know, um, or informing the public at a time where the public's in a position to do something about it, they sit on it and they keep it quiet until they can make it the bombshell scoop for their book and sell a bunch of copies. And um, that that just completely rubs me the wrong way. So I said Bolton is an example of where the first impeachment over Trump's attempt to uh, extort Ukraine was uh, something where one of the arguments against impeaching him was that none of the people who were testifying in the impeachment trial had uh, high-level first-hand knowledge, that a lot of them were reporting second-hand knowledge or had first-hand knowledge of, you know, they were participants in a conversation, but not kind of the main ones in the room. And Bolton was in the room. And uh, we had evidence at the time to think that Bolton both knew what happened and thought it was wrong. And he did. And he was right that it was wrong. He had, for example, you know, called it, he referred to it as a drug deal. Like, I don't want to be a part of whatever drug deal Rudy Giuliani is cooking up. 
And so he knew it was wrong. And he could see that the one of the arguments against impeachment were nobody who was in that room is actually testifying. He was in the room and he just didn't testify, maybe out of some degree of, you know, say partisanship or maybe uh, lingering loyalty to the administration. But then he went around and said it during when he was had a book to sell, when he had a book to sell. And so while the I don't think that Bolton testifying would have made a big difference during impeachment, but that was the time to tell the public. And the Woodward one was uh, Woodward had on tape Trump saying that he knew that COVID was a deadly airborne virus and was going to uh, deliberately lie to the American people and downplay it because he didn't want people to panic. And this was uh, and we found out about this many months after the virus had already been ravaging the United States and killing thousands of people. And uh, hey, the president knows that this is actually deadly. He is lying to you now would be a really useful thing to have told people before the pandemic was really getting underway, as opposed to once it had already been going for months and was basically beyond the point we could contain it and where, you know, some people were already having uh, culture war fights over it. Um, And so this is just the latest one that here's an example of where um, they had the two reporters had Millie, um, they had information that, you know, so chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff thought that there was a real risk of a coup attempt to the point where he had um, organized some other generals that they would altogether refuse to go along with it if they were asked. And he had um, been making Nazi analogies. He was talking about the Reichstag fire. He was talking about um, the uh, brown shirts, uh, you know, comparing things like some of the, you know, the Proud Boys or some other uh, kind of street uh, violence uh, Trump supporting groups that I'm comparing him to the brown shirts. And he's making, you know, these serious comparisons. And, eh, you know, don't worry, the public doesn't need to learn about this for months until the Capitol attack. And during that period, during the six month time period, we had things like the second impeachment fail and uh, attempts to get a congressional investigation, a bipartisan investigation or an outside committee to do investigation of the Capitol attack fail and people lie about it and lie about it some more and be able to muddy the waters more um, and reach the point where now Trump and some other Republican leaders are celebrating some of the uh, attackers and calling um, one of the insurrectionists who was killed a martyr and um, all of this. I don't think that if the reporter said, hey, uh, the general, the top general in the United States really did think that a coup attempt was possible. He was worried about it enough that he started trying to hedge against it. That's the sort of thing that would be useful for the public to know. And I don't know if that would have had a substantial difference. I don't think it would have, for example, I don't know if it would have made a capital attack commission happen three weeks ago or three months ago or whatever. But that seems timely. It's the longer you wait for people to find out, the more it becomes history as opposed to current events. And the only motivation to not tell people is to sell books. Yeah, but I don't think we're going to, I think that's going to become more of a problem, not less of a problem, unfortunately. We, we did some beating up on our own country here, but I, generally speaking, I'm still pretty bullish on American freedom and values in the world. Uh, I still do believe in the country. I wondered, I think there's some signs that we may be kind of taking a step back and reviewing some things. Do you see some positive foreign policy developments? Because uh, I see some positives coming in the world. We're obviously one of the great humanitarian organizations the world's ever seen. Uh, I think we'll continue to do those things. But what do you see foreign policy-wise in the near future that could be positive? Uh, so I am, in general, uh, I guess maybe lay my cards on the table. Uh, I'm someone who believes that um, American power 
uh, has been, can be, and should be a force for good in the world. It's also at times been uh, not at all that. So um, I don't want to paint you know too rosy a picture of the United States, but in general, especially when you compare it to the alternatives. Um, and so I want the United States to continue doing that. I think that that is kind of net beneficial. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, Nicholas Grossman, tell folks where they can find you. I know I first got to know you on social media, but uh, you write in our senior editor at Arc Digital, your other projects. Tell folks where they can find you. So the, the two biggest things are um, Arc Digital. And uh, if you just Google that, A-R-C Digital, um, you should be able to find us. Um, and we are now on Substack. Um, and uh, I also um, am on Twitter regularly. I'm at ngrossman81, or just if you search me, Nicholas Grossman, you should find me. And um, I will have an article out on ARC probably by the time this goes up about the uh, threat to democracy within the United States. Great stuff. Uh, follow him. Uh, seek out. I'm a big fan of ARC. Uh, full disclosure, I have wrote a few pieces for them over the years. Don't hold that against them. But uh, it's a great place that has a wide yeah. uh, spurt of uh, opinions, which is rare these days. And they mean it. And they've done it for a couple of years now. So they're walking it, not just talking it. Nicholas Grossman, thank you so much for your time today, sir. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Hey, Tom, sir. Not to sound real cliched or jingoistic, but one of the reasons I do writing and podcasting and media and things like this, and especially why I talk about culture and politics, is because I love my country. I love America. I'm proud to be an American. It means something to me. It's meant something to me most of my life. It meant something to me when I wore the uniform on active duty. And it means even more to me now, kind of in the middle part of my life, as I go through it and I see my own children raising and I see the events in the world. My love for my country made me want to be involved in politics because I want to be involved. I want to make a difference in things. And it's one of the things that Nicholas Grossman said in our interview with him that I believe in as well. It's not that America is perfect. We're not. And our enemies love to do the whataboutism of all our various flaws. And those are flaws that we need to work on. We have a checkered history on a lot of issues. But when you look at the world as a whole, there's no alternative to the freedom that America professes to want to live up to and the liberty we profess we want to give to people anywhere else in the world. The alternative is is worse than what America has now. So even though it's not perfect, even though we've had moments where it teetered, even when we have moments when we failed our own ideals, America has to be good because that's good for all the world, not just for us. And while there's people who may have their legitimate reasons for America wanting to be isolationist or not caring what goes on in the world, it's just not reality in a global world. And one that's getting even closer with communication and technology is coming around that we are more connected than ever before. If we only see America as a negative in the world, then we're giving the our enemies who have really repressive tendencies against other people more and more ammunition against those folks. So when a China, which is brutally oppressing their people, especially certain minority groups inside their own borders, or a Russia who is actively invading other countries and attacking people and attacking journalists and being a brutal regime in and of themselves, point out our flaws, we need to make sure we have our facts straight so we can say, yeah, we have those flaws. We're going to work on them. But we're still going to profess freedom and liberty to the rest of the world because what you're using against us is just an excuse for you to be more and more what you are, oppressive, 
When disinformation comes from a place like Russia or China, they love to put in a little bit of truth, which is that we have checkered racial past, that we do have social unrest, that we do have political upheaval, that sometimes we can elect people that are our elected leaders that maybe aren't altogether there. But we're still America. We're still a beacon of freedom and hope to most of the world. And when we teeter and fall, it's bad not just for America, but for the whole world. Because that power vacuum and that moral vacuum is going to be filled by somebody. And we need to make sure America stays in that gap and holds it. Because the alternative for millions and millions of people around the world, if we don't, is really bad stuff that we can't even fathom in the comfort of our America, but becomes a frightening reality to those people. We should debate the issues of where we intervene when we don't intervene. What kind of intervention? How should we protect ourselves? How do we protect our interests? And we definitely need to be better friends to our allies overseas than we've been as of late. So when we see protesters in the street, what should that mean to us? We should be empathetic. We should want them to be free. We should debate how we can help them. But we need to make sure, first and foremost, that we look in the mirror and go, America is as free and as liberty-minded as we possibly can be. So when those moments of opportunity to export that to other countries comes, we have our own house in order first. That does it for this edition of Herd Tell. Thank you so much for listening. The numbers have been climbing. We appreciate you listening to our little program. Make sure when you're on iTunes, Spotify, the YouTube page, however you're listening to this podcast— Please make sure you do a rating and do a comment. Let us know what you think. We will respond to you if we see it. And those are important because it lets other people and the platforms that they're on know that what we're doing is worthwhile. We're going to keep doing it as long as you keep listening and engaging with us on it. So wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope we find you well. Till we talk to you again, y'all take care. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done.